Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It worked. <laughs> so good. Alrighty. Chapter 20. A quickie. They were, every once in a while, we, we, we have these real short ones, and we can cover this one pretty, pretty fast. Now, this is a prophecy against Egypt, which we talked about last week, and Cush, which is basically the Ethiopian end of that, that empire. So this is against both of them, that, and we took a look at both of them last week, so we're going to revisit them. And we're also going to see in chapter 22, we're going to come back to Israel, Jerusalem in specific. So, yeah, we're going to you know, keep renewing this occasionally, but uh, there's, there's a consistent theme that we keep finding here. And what, what all these prophecies are about is, it's telling you, first of all, something fairly immediate that's going to happen. The disaster that, that, that will befall you. Something soon to be is coming. So there's that sense of you need to be able to separate what is soon to be from the very distant future. So remember, you know, one, chapter eight, we, we got into, uh, you know, a child will be born, and you know, so Jesus is coming, but that's not for 700 years. So, and then there's also a sense of we've we've gotten in, in a couple of these these nations is the actual like heaven, like end times type stuff. So we have different time periods that that we're concerned with, but you know all of these at least cover two. They cover the the soon to be or current disaster that will befall you, and then there is that transition to a, a hopeful future when things are. If you do this, then I will do that. So that that's the the formula. So just with that in mind, by the time we get to chapter 22 tonight, uh, when we get back to Jerusalem. That soon-to-be event that is talked about in chapter 22 is 125 years in the future. <laughs> so sometimes the soon-to-be is a little extended, but in a reasonable amount of time. A couple generations, this will happen, and then again, you know, the, the, the long-term benefit, the long-term hopeful ending, I guess you could say. So here we're talking about Egypt and Cush. And I guess it appears as though Isaiah is just going to be running around naked for a while, for like three years. Woohoo! <laughs> Think of the fun this will be. So now this is symbolic, exactly the same as remember how this started. Isaiah was instructed to wear sackcloth, and sackcloth is the 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 classic symbol of repentance. So what he had been wearing up to that point was a call to repentance. As soon as you saw him. Repentance was the first thing you thought of because that garb signifies that. So, but now all of a sudden, we're done. So instead, nakedness, which is to demonstrate what's going to happen to the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. So Isaiah walks around for three years naked because that's the, the sense of the disaster that will befall them. In other words, nothing is left. So this is for a three-year period. Remember a couple chapters ago, God said, you can count the days. In three years, exactly, this is going to happen. And we know from the Bible and from history books, it was exactly three, three years to the day that you know, that prophecy did, did come true. So that's what we have laid out here in the first, first couple of verses. So you know, verse three, you know, this is you know, God, God talking. So he's, he's now stripped and barefoot. For a three-year period, see, it's it's a sign and a portent. It's a it's a vision of what is to come. So, verse four: the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared, to Egypt's shame. So, again, this is a a a portent of things to come. And again, if God says it's going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen. That's the way he works. Now, verse 5. 
we we see again the sense of see they, they trusted these guys who boasted others are putting their trust in that and that's that's the underlying issue with all these nations including Israel is the thinking that we can take care of ourselves we don't need God by our, by our military strength, by our, remember Egypt was their agricultural strength, uh, by some human means, we can take care of ourselves and we do not need God. Now you call that pride, you call that arrogance, you call it whatever you want, but that's really the underlying principle involved here. And all these nations are guilty of the exact same thing. In fact, God says in verse 5, they will be put to shame. Isn't that the result of thinking you could do something and then you can't? You're shamed. That's what's happening to these people. Now, it also says that the Egyptians will be afraid in verse 5. What, what are they afraid of? It's loud guest time in the old corral. No. Invading armies. Okay, so the terror of an invading army, but now you got to go another layer deeper. Who's the the originator of the invading army? Syria. God, right? So this is this is what God's saying. This is I am doing this. He's made that clear a number of times. It's not these aren't perchance things happening. This is God behind it. So they are afraid now fearful of what is befalling them. God's wrath is that total and complete. And then finally, verse 6. Yeah, this only has six, six verses in it. The realization finally comes to them that their plan to take care of themselves has failed, and there's no one to help them. And they can only respond by saying, how then can we escape they realize the totality of, of God's wrath all around them and just simple resignation. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Because we, you know, at that point, yes, the realization that no one is going to beat God finally finally hits them. We, we, we can't escape this. And again, you, you see that clearly in, in Revelation. You know, people are uh, trying to you know, hide under rocks you know, trying to get out of sight of God. If I hide here, you know, he won't find me. Well, he kind of does. He did it with Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> did same, same with Cain, right? So, see, that's, that's the result of sin. Is that, so we have shame, which means you hide, but God's going to find you anyway. You, you can't hide from God. And there was chapter 20. Woo! What else do you see in chapter 20? You know, I'm talking more about Isaiah's bare, bare buttocks. <laughs> chapter 21. A little bit more going on here. We've got a couple different prophecies. Now, this is an oracle concerning the desert by the sea. There are no deserts by seas, by definition. <laughs> right? I mean, where there's water, you're not going to have a desert. So that's a very strange thing to say. So the desert's not wet and the sea's not dry. So basically what this prophecy is about is the same as all the others. If you trust Babylon, you too will fall. Now again, this is way in the future. This is a good 100, 125 years in the future. Instead, you need to trust God. Otherwise, you're as silly as a desert by the sea. You're a fool. But essentially, what, what this is saying, you know, in this sense, the sea can't help you. The desert can't help you. Like they, they said there at the end of the last chapter, how, how are we going to escape this? The only way to escape this is to come to God. But it takes them a long time to figure this out. So in, in verse 2, it, it, it mentions Elam and Media. That's not media, media like we know media today. This is an actual city. Uh, 
These are, are two small countries that at one point allied with Babylon. And now they turn on Babylon. So again, yes, prediction of the future. This is way down the road, but this is what actually did happen. Verses 3 and 4, a, a description of the reaction of the people to the destruction of Babylon. And you, you got to understand Babylon. I mean, these guys had it together. I mean, if you're looking for a military machine, this was it. I mean, they beat the Assyrians. They got to be good. So they had like the most incredible military machine the world has ever seen. And everybody thought no one could possibly defeat them. And yet, here they are. So there is lamenting. I mean, look at the, look at the ways they, they describe the lamenting in verses 3 and 4. My, my body is racked with pain. I staggered by what I hear. I'm bewildered by what I see. My, my heart falters. And fear makes me tremble. And then it becomes a horror. Well, that sounds like so much fun I can hardly contain myself. So this, this is the response because people can't wrap their minds around it. You know, how could this be? This incredible military force is just completely obliterated. And eventually, yes, they figure out this is, this is God at work. And verse 5 describes how sudden this happens. This wasn't a slow, gradual process. This was incredibly sudden. They are at a table feasting, and in a blink of an eye, they're destroyed. Like the enemy gets in, in, in the gate and is on them before they even realize what happened. The sentries don't see it coming. No, There's no warning bell. There's nothing. It just We're just sitting here having a good time, and all of a sudden, boom, you're dead. Now, verses 6 to 10. It, it, this is giving specifics of what, what's going to happen to Babylon. Now, keep in mind this prophecy is shared even before there is a Babylonian empire. Right? This is way in the future. Now, these verses demonstrate again the utter destruction that, that, that will befall them. But it it's, you know, talks about, you know, in, in, in verse 6, a lookout and what they see and but they can't even sound the bell at that point. It's just, they're, they're, they're on us. Verse 10, my people are crushed on a threshing floor. So that's a bit about Babylon. We're going to come back to Babylon. We've already had some Babylon. And we've got it now. We're going to be coming back to it again because they're, they're really the key players in all of this. And it really gets bad because of what they did to God's people Israel. Remember, when they took over, they exported all the men out of out of Israel and made them slaves in in Babylon. But if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have Daniel. We wouldn't have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you know, all those cool stories. So, uh, neat stuff still still happens. Now, verse eleven and twelve. This is just a two-verse prophecy. I think chapter 20 was quick. You know, this is only two verses. And th this is against a Duma. Well, Duma is an oasis. It's not a country. It's just an oasis about 300 miles southeast of Jerusalem. What? What did they ever do? Well, apparently they're part of it. Well, you're an oasis. You're, you know, that's a rather lavish place. And so you would think wealth and all of that would be kind of... You know what? What is driving these the, these people? But again, a very strange message to Duma, because it keeps talking about this this watchman. Now, if you go back to verse four, it talks about the the, the twilight I long for has become a horror to me. Now, look what it's saying here with 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 Duma. It's saying that they're watching for the daylight. Right? The watchman is anticipating, isn't that a good sign? You know, dawn? I mean, we usually associate that with now, okay, the bad stuff is over, the dawn has come. So the watchman is looking for daylight and realizes that too brings horror. And besides that, verse 12, the dawn comes 
more destruction, and then there's nightfall again. <laughs> Even more destruction. So it just, yeah, you can't get away from this, in other words. There's nowhere you can go, nothing you can do to, to prevent this from happening to you. Verse 13 now starts a, 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 a prophecy about Arabia. And so that area, if you're looking for it on the map, is, is the desert area between Babylon and Israel. So kind of positioned in between here. So Babylon's kind of in the, this, this southeast a bit of, of Israel, but it's in that whole region in there. Kind of an Iran-Iraq type area, a lot of sand there, uh, all of that jazz. Then verse 14, you get into this place called, called Tema. That's fun. That's another oasis. We're really picking on the oasis. Is it plural? Oases? Look, look that up, Kyle. Will you please? Um, what, what, what an answer tonight. Um, now that's, remember, Duma is 300 miles southeast of Jerusalem. This is another 200 miles south of Duma. Or about 500 miles south of Jerusalem. So go back to verse 13. The reference to the, the Dedanites. They're about 90 miles south of Tema. <laughs> so you're, you're, the point is, this is a huge geographic area that, that we're talking about. All these different nations. Basically, the whole known world at the time is under this wrath of God. Verse 16. This is a more immediate destruction. Because God says all this is going to occur within one year. So Egypt, you got three years of nakedness to demonstrate what's going to happen to you. Now this is one year, boom, you're done. Now, verse, verse 17, I, I think, is really, really key. The survivors of the bowmen, the warriors of Kedar, will be few. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. What does it mean when it says, the Lord has spoken? Okay, say some more. End of story. In in, in what sense? He says will happen. Okay. Okay, that's, I, I think, an important feature. You know, once I say it, I mean it, and I'm not going to change my mind. So this will happen. It's the highest authority we can Yes. But again, the consistency and reliability of God, he has to be true to himself, so... If he says it, he means it. And there is nothing that any of us can, can, can do about it. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we, we, we've talked about parenting. Do you, do you see the value of this in, in terms of parenting? All right. Do, do, do the inverse. If, if God, by the same token, if parents, if 50% of what they said, they didn't follow up on. Or was a lie. What is the result of the children? They what? They don't listen to anything they say. Right. How about if only ten percent is a lie? See, yeah, I, because they don't know. Is this the truth or is this a lie? Right. It's it's always yeah. Just I can't tell. Therefore, I'm not going to listen to anything. So we need God to do this. So all the weeping, all the crying, all the, you know, please God, please God, please God, doesn't change this. Because if it did, it would be a mess. We would be a mess. Because then we would not know really what God means and what he doesn't. So God is not going to throw something out there as just some idle threat and hope that we, we understand it. Much like many, many years ago, well, if you on, on this main floor here above us, you notice that there's not a water cooler anymore. The water cooler is way down in the elevator. You're welcome. Um, because I could not take it anymore sitting in my office late afternoon when parents are picking up their children. And apparently, I can only conclude that children are hardwired. It is impossible for them to walk past a water cooler and not get a drink. It's, it's physically impossible. Because apparently there's not one parent on earth who has ever got their child to walk past a water cooler. And so all I'm listening to is parents just, just threatening, 
uh, pleading, uh, doing every possible thing. Billy, come on, we gotta go. And you hear nothing from the child, they're just happy go lucky, just and, and then the parents start threatening. Bye, I'm leaving. And it's they're not leaving. <laughs> but I say that's what you teach your kids is you know, I'm just I'm making idle threats, I'm just throwing things out there, so I really don't mean it. So it, it's terribly confusing for children and I I suspect it's terribly confusing for us as well. If God were to do that with us, if it would just to throw things out to us, and we're not sure if He really means it. Um, so I guess what this means is that when God, when you see uh, the wrathful God, I mean, there's a loving God, and then occasionally there's this wrathful God. When you see the wrathful God, you know He means business, right? This isn't some show. This isn't. Uh, him just acting this way to, to, to get our attention. This is God who is really going to lower the boom. And because he knows this is the best thing for us. But that's what God does. God has spoken. Whew. So, you young parents in the room, try, try that with your kids. <laughs> when I speak... <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> so let it be written. So let it be done. <laughs> but again, it, it, it comes down to you know, the voice of God. You, you want to know the voice of God. Your children need to know your voice. Trust me. If you're, you're holding your child's hand, he breaks away from you, he's running across the street. When you yell to that child his name and say, stop, you want that child to heed your voice. Whether they, you know, you don't have time to explain this. You know, you don't have time to sit your child down rationally and have a conversation with them. This is something immediate. This is something dangerous. It must happen immediately. And your voice now, you have spoken and you expect your child to, to heed your word. So we're not in a conversation about this. Just do what I tell you to do. This is what God does with us. So call that authority. Call that uh, strict, call that whatever you want, but this is the way it is. Has been, is, and always will be. And again, you want to see some more fun, just turn to Revelation, you'll see how that unfolds. <laughs> chapter after chapter of just fun, 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 fun. Right? So, God means it. This is what is going to happen. The Lord has spoken. So, this whole last section here, again, just makes the simple point. We've only heard it about a hundred times so far. Put your trust in God and no one or nothing else. And no object and no person. And that's why God keeps, keeps reminding us, stop making alliances. Stop you know, working with other people, other nations. Stop, stop this. This is not what you need. You need me. You call on me by name and I will take care of you. That's his promise to us. Other thoughts in chapter 21? Chapter 22. Let's go back to Jerusalem. God hadn't yelled at them in a while. Now it's time. Now, this is for the nation of Israel, but again, you know, often they, the, the capital is what is named. This is specifically to Jerusalem, but indeed to, to all of God's people. And the main message here is that Israel first allies with the Assyrians and think that the Assyrians will help them destroy their enemies. Well, the Assyrians turn on them, capture them, and really abuse them. So, Israel said, well, that didn't work. Let me try it with the Babylonians. <laughs> and so they, they, the new kids on the block, the Babylonians, you guys have a good military machine. We'll secretly ally ourselves with you to beat these nasty Assyrians. And as soon as the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians, then they capture all of Israel and move all the men out. And that didn't work so well either. So the title of this prophecy, again, is as strange as the, you know, the desert by the sea. This is called a valley of vision. Have you ever been at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? In a big valley? Can't see much. <laughs> right? Got walls on the you know, 
hundreds of feet high on either side of it. All you can do is see straight up, and that's about it. So you know, as a military defense, the valley is the worst place you could possibly be. You can attack from any side, from above, from in front, behind, anything. Not good. But this is called the valley of vision. What this really means is the valley of the lack of vision. Right? Because you ain't got none. Right? So it, it, it's a contradiction. You, you can't have a vision in a valley. If you want to have a vision, you go up on a mountaintop. You get to the highest point so that you can see everything. So this is saying that the Israelites thought they were seeing clearly what to do. They made the alliance with the Assyrians and they made the alliance with the Babylonians. And here's God saying, you guys don't know nothing. You can't see anything. Which case you ought to be smart enough and come back to me. Who sees all. Sounds like tunnel vision. Oh, worst case of tunnel vision ever. Maybe with your hand in front of your face too, right? That's yeah, just you're you're you're, you're very nearsighted and, and tunnel vision and you, know, you got cataracts and astigmatisms and <laughs> yes, precisely. Just yeah, you, know, you can't see anything. But they keep doing the same thing, you see, and expecting different results. So God is trying to get their attention. But what this means is that since they're in this valley, they can't hardly see anything. You would think they would be smart enough to come to their senses and seek out God. But they don't. So the end result, as we've seen with all these other nations, the destruction that befell them, simply because they reject God, now that will befall Israel as well. Not a worse punishment, not a better punishment. The exact same punishment. Now this gets into a theological fun area because Israel's is God's people, right? God supposedly likes them better. But the punishment, the wrath, is the exact same as it is for other nations. They get no special dispensation. They get the exact same thing. And that, I think, is good news for us as well. Because it says God doesn't show favors. So he's not going to be, you know, just give them a slap on the wrist when he's wiping everybody else out. The result of sin is the exact same regardless of who you are. God doesn't like you better than anybody else. Doesn't hate your worst. We're all the same. So in terms of the vision, verses 8, 9, and 11, describe, use, use vision words. Uh, verse 8 uh, you looked, verse 9, you saw, verse 11, but you did not look. Right? Keeps using the word lo looking and seeing and, you know, expressions like that. So it starts with, you know, what troubles you now? <laughs> like, you people are always whining and complaining. Right? What troubles you now that you've gone up on the roofs? O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry. Your, your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. What's that mean? That's not how they died, how they died. They're killed by God's wrath. Yeah, wrath of God, see? Wow. Right? See, God, God's in charge of this. Resulting in all your leaders fleeing. Remember way back one of the first couple chapters? You know, a, a child becomes their leader because no one will step up to the plate. <laughs> Everybody runs away and it just, you know, it, it just, it's just ridiculous. But they fled, but nonetheless been captured without using a bow, without, without a weapon. That's how easy they were to capture. They're just, just ridiculous. They're taken prisoner. And there's, they're taken prisoner even while the enemy is still far away. <laughs> so, just ridiculous. So God says to them, turn away from me and let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. So, this breaks God's heart. As would any good parent when a child goes 
goes astray. But yet it doesn't stop God from doing what he knows is the right thing to do. Verse 5, the Lord God Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. A day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. So they take up their arms. They try to defeat this enemy, but it, it just it overwhelms them. So look at uh, verses 8 to 10. The defenses of Judah are stripped away. Jerusalem in specific, walled city. So there's holes in the wall. Um, verse 10, they tear down their houses and use the building materials of that to plug up the holes. Right? So they're, they're again, trying to defend themselves, trying to do whatever they can militarily to help themselves rather than call upon God. Look, look at the second half of verse 8. You looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. So, again, yeah, yeah, if you, if, the vision, the ability to see where we need to go, and all you could see is we need more weapons rather than call on God. If you were God, you would be pretty frustrated too, especially with my people. So, verse 11, they, they, they continue to, to make preparations to, to help themselves. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. Question. Please. Palace of the Forest, what is that? It was a designated area in Jerusalem that... Trying to think of what the what the purpose of it was. It was like a retreat center, Camp David type thing on the the far side, but there was a uh, a central park. Right, we corridor off an area and don't allow any buildings to be built there or anything that is a natural type place, but forest trees to hide. So that was one of their you know, last strongholds that they tried to try to hole up in. But take your weapons there. Smart mind would say we could defend ourselves here, but nothing. So they they tried to build a reservoir for water. But you see, the problem always is, with all these nations, Israel included, they tried to rely on their own ingenuity to get themselves out of it. And here God, very specifically, in the second half of uh, verse 11, but you didn't look to the one who made it, capital O-1. And you did not regard the one who planted. See, that, that's the whole issue here. I mean, you could... You could paraphrase Isaiah in pretty much that one sentence. <laughs> you want to irritate God, disregard it. You want to be blessed by God, make him part of your life. But you, you see all the different means that we use to, to disregard God, to think that we can do this by ourselves, that we don't need God. And today, I mean, we, we have even more ways. We're a lot more ingenious than they were back then, so we've got real clever in coming up with, with neat little new religions and all this, you know, idol worship and whatnot. It, it just, it, it, it's insanity. And people keep buying it. That rather than come to the one true God, they think, that, that sounds smart. So nature worship and just all that is, is incredibly prevalent these days. Keep coming up with new ways to irritate God. We're getting really good at it. So after all this bad, look at verse 12. And yet the Lord continues to reach out to his people. He called you on that day, it says. He called you to repent. But 
but you continue to reject him. So verse 13, instead of repenting, they continue to enjoy the fruits of their labors. And the famous quote, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, that, that seems to be the motto of many of our young people these days. You know, all kinds of reckless behaviors and uh, just no thought of the future. Uh, a high percentage of 18-year-olds, uh, when, when polled, believe that they will not live to be 25. So many people say that YOLO, you only live once, is the big thing that the kids are saying. Yeah, it just gets in your head, and yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm going for the gusto. I'm gonna experience all kinds of things, and uh, I, yeah, I've said it before. I'll say it again. You just want evidence of that? Just, just get on YouTube and watch all the crazy things people are doing. I mean, it just, just crazy stuff. I mean, it, yeah, they're just wiping themselves out, just, just for a thrill. Um, how many years ago was it that the the uh, the dam, the kid jumped off the dam. Where was that? Remember we went and saw that? Uh, I can't think where that was now. But it, it, it's on YouTube. You know, a guy's gonna, you know, the, there wasn't water going over the dam, but there was, you know, of course, a lot of water down there. And this kid, a bunch, a bunch of kids are out there partying and stuff, and the kid gets on there and says, watch me. And so he's gonna dive off and dive in. Well, he didn't dive out far enough and just, just hit rock. I mean, just, it's pretty high. But yeah, just just the, no regard. Just, I can I can do this. I'm I'm invincible. Uh, it's taken on a, a a whole new level these days. Just absolutely in, incredible. So God continues to call His people, but our response is: Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, if that isn't the ultimate rejection of God, I don't know what is. Again, we're just going to do what we can to enjoy whatever, and that that will be it. So there's not even a care or concern of my life, is what they're saying. Now that's what it was thousands of years ago. Nowadays, it's quite pronounced. Now, verse 14, a critical verse. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. This is Isaiah speaking. To your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. So even though God continues to make these overtures to, to bring his people back, he knows that they will not. The sin will not be atoned for. It will, they will not repent. They will not do what they have to do. God, God knows that. Because if the people repented, God would surely forgive them. But he's simply saying, I know they won't. Again, much like Revelation. After the second coming, there's no evidence of anybody repenting. Not one person. But God continues to plead. Now, you would think if you saw a, a naked prophet walking around, that would be some interesting dinner conversation. I wonder what that's all about. <laughs> that would be something I'd love to ask Owen. I mean, that would be, I'd, I'd, I'd love, love, love to get his input on that. It, uh, well, because <laughs> I'm sure he has some thoughts on that, right? It, uh, you know, what are you going to do with that? So, I mean, but. Nothing, nothing registers with them. And apparently this is worldwide. At this time, it was just, it was that bad. Which seems to be much like right before the flood. Isn't that the description God gave of the earth? No one. Except no one in his family. That's it. Of all the millions and millions of people on earth, it just... That's it. And that seems to be the same thing. But you see, back then, the remnant, and we, we still have that. But in, in this section, at least, in, in chapter 22, I mean, God doesn't really hold out a whole lot of hope here. He's not, he's not projecting this, this good future, this remnant. None of that is mentioned in this section. We've, we've seen it before for Israel, but, but not, not here. 
So verses 15 and 16. We're introduced to a guy named Shebna. Great name. Gotta like this guy. And he apparently is in charge of the palace, which means he's like second in command to the king. I mean, he's a very high-ranking official. And the high-ranking officials in Israel are always responsible for the spiritual well-being and the overall well-being of everyone in the nation. I mean, that's their job. But this guy kind of messed things up. I mean, for him to be specifically named like this is, is, is pretty bad. So he spends his time, you can see that in, in uh, verses 15 and 16, uh, 16 in particular, rather than taking care of God's people, leading God's people in the right way, he is out building for, he's still alive, but building for himself his tomb as a memorial to himself. <laughs> right? Out of, you know, your, your grave, you know, hewed out of the rock and all that, right? So he's, he's building a monument to himself. While he's still alive. That's his his focus. He's using the power and influence he has in the nation to do that. Talk about arrogance, right? So God says, well, we're not going to put up with that. Chisel your resting place in rock, right? <laughs> so, verse 17, look what God does. The Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O mighty man. <laughs> right? That's what's going to happen. He's going to take a firm hold of you and hurl you away. Now, verse 18 is another indication that God's wrath has come upon them as a result of their putting their faith and trust in military strength rather than God. Because there you see a reference to chariots, right? So that's a military machine. In the end, God declares that Shebna and his attitude is a disgrace. Verse 19, he's building this memorial to himself so that, why do you build a memorial? So you'll be remembered. Verse 19 says, you're going to be forgotten. You're, you're going to be deposed from office, and your position is going to be handed to somebody else. You're going to be not even a footnote in, in the history books. Because in that day, and here's the hopeful part, but not really, Verse 20 sounds good. I will summon my servant El Elkahim, and I'm going to clothe him with your robe, Shebna's robe, and fasten Shebna's sash around him, and hand Shebna's authority to him. So this new guy now is going to basically get everything Shebna worked his, his whole life for. In fact, he will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now, all that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sound like a hero coming, somebody to lead the people? Well, watch what happens. Verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. That sounds good. Right? So this guy is, you know, a direct link to David. And, you know, he's... So in that line, he's going he's gonna to take responsibility for this. In fact, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Well... How cool is that? And that's what Jesus said to Peter. Right? So this is a pretty good guy. But then the fun starts in verse 23. A real, real big image is created here. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. So this is like you know, a peg in a wall that you hang a picture on. Now, the funny story in my family is my, 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 my parents just moved into a new house and had a very expensive painting in glass and had it behind hanging behind a couch, but the couch wasn't pushed up against the wall, so it was just enough gap. So they, it was up, yeah, my sister was there, uh, 
you know, dad and my sister went out to go do something else, and they hear this incredible crash after about 15 minutes, and they had hit the ground and just exploded all over the place, and just because the the peg didn't hold, it was too heavy, and that's what's being described here. So we have the peg in the wall, but now the offspring, the offshoots, the lesser vessels, you know, for just everything begins to be hung on that one guy. So it says, in that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It'll be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. Again, the Lord has spoken. So what that's saying is that this really good guy does come along, and the nation, rather than coming to God, come to this guy and put all the weight on him. In other words, Elkahim save us. Elkahim save us. Rather than come to God to save us, they come to this guy, who is in fact a good guy. But the burden and weight of all the people putting their needs and expectations, their wants and their, their whining and fussing on him, shears it off from the wall and the picture comes crashing down and explodes. In other words, all is lost at that point. Because they don't come to God. They're still not coming to God. They found another human, which in this sense, it, it become an, an idol to them. A human being can become an idol. When you put your faith and trust in that, in that person, that's what it is. It, it, it's, it's an idol. So again, if this is, starts off sounding good, but it's not. This is not, not, not a good prophecy for, for Israel. This is, this is what they, they, they choose to do. So I guess I might as well tell you that's precisely what I've been doing in this church since I've been here. I'm striving to not make you nor allow you to rely solely on me. Because there's going to be a day when I'm not going to be here. What's going to happen then? I'm taking a peg out of the wall, right? Even if I could support all that, pull that out, everything on it will crash. So instead, I take God's job description of the pastor in Ephesians 4 very seriously. Because God says my job is to equip the saints. Not do the job for you, but equip you to do it. It's a huge difference. So that now you are sharing the burden. You're taking responsibility for ministry as opposed to just sit back and let the minister do all of it. Because churches that I've been in where that happens, they're not fun churches. <laughs> because when you, you know, they say, minister, we want you to do all this, but boy, you start talking, all they do is whine and complain about the minister. <laughs> because nobody likes the way he's doing anything or she's doing everything. So it's just, it's a mess. And that's why the biblical prescription is don't, pastors should not treat their churches like this. Making them, making the church members come to me. So I'm here to guide you. I'm here to resource you. I'm here to give you a swift kick if necessary. But not put you all on my shoulders and have you think, well, this, this is great. I don't have to do anything. This guy's going to do it all for me. If you're totally dependent on me, when I leave, you will not be able to conduct ministry by yourself. You will be like children. And when the next minister comes, since you don't know what you're doing, you will do the same thing to the next minister. What this is saying is that no human can sustain that much pressure. So I never want to give you the impression that I am super preacher. I have a cape, but... It's not for that. So I'm not, I, I never want to give you the sense that I can, I can handle everything. You guys don't have to do anything. I got it all. Just do whatever I tell you to do. Right? Just sit back and watch me do it. What I'm saying is that my job here is to point you to God, not to me. That's what effective ministry is. I will walk alongside you. I will hold your hand. I will kick you if I need to. But we're going to do this together. We're not going to do it at all. 
but I will not, not allow anyone to, to, to force me into this type of situation. It's not healthy for you and it's not healthy for me. And it will result in something just yucky because the Lord has spoken. Now I have spoken. <laughs> so what else do you see in chapter 22? That's a pretty, pretty big one. Lots going on there. Somebody say something really intelligent. Or say something silly, I don't care. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like yeah, yeah, that was yeah, my, was, my recollection. It took, took me yeah. a second. I was, Wait a minute now. I know that. <laughs> that's like one of those really trivia questions. That <laughs> Are you smarter than the fifth grader? No. Uh, it, uh, what, whatever happened to that show? Uh, Jeff Foxworthy had that, that, that Bible Challenge show. It was on for like two years. Loved that show. It just kind of fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. Oh, my, my head hurt after that. Oh, my gosh. Some of those questions were so hard. Wow. Yeah, so that was... So it's around there somewhere. What does it say in chapter 22? This goes to show that people just don't learn, do they? Well, we talked about that. You know, history does repeat itself uh, to to our destruction. I mean, my gosh, you know, why can't we see this? But we see it. We need our leaders to see this and lead us away from this kind of destruction. That's that's what's what's necessary. Because look, look 22.5, I mean, the Lord has his day of tumult and trampling and terror coming. <laughs> so, again, he's spoken this, so it's going to happen. We, we have to see this coming. See anything else? Good stuff. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.